Hello, I'm Luke Hunt, and this is a podcast for The Diplomat. With me is Dominic Folder, um, an extremely experienced journalist who has done many decades in Southeast Asia, and particularly out of Thailand, and he's worked for many of the great mastheads around the world. Uh, Dominic has just released a new book on uh, the former Thai Prime Minister and one of this country's top diplomats, Anand Panyara Chun. I apologise for my apologise for my bad Thai pronunciations, uh, and the, the book is called um, "And the Making of Modern Thailand." Dominic, welcome. And I'm going to start with the obvious questions: um, How did this book come about? And secondly, I'm, I was really quite taken by the way you've placed Thailand and its historical perspective within the region and beyond since World War II. Right. Well, the book was commissioned uh, by the publisher uh, Edition Didier Millet in um, 2012, and followed another book uh, about King Bhumibol, which was a uh, a biography of his life. And Anand had worked on that book as the chairman of the editorial advisory board, uh, and I was one of the senior editors. Uh, and when we were producing that book, we would have. Uh, editorial conferences and Anand would be sitting there and he would make observations such as you know, what it was like to be in a room with Saret Tanarat, the field marshal who, who was the Prime Minister of Thailand in the early 1960s. And these didn't belong in the King's book but they were very interesting and we realised that Anand had a very interesting life. So uh, after that book was published and came out and, and done and dusted as it were, uh, EDM went back to him and asked if he'd be prepared to work on an authorised biography uh, and uh, I, he agreed and he was, he was quite prepared to work with me because he, he, I was a known quantity, he'd already worked on a previous project um, and so we got going on this biography together and um, I had not realised previously how long and interesting his life was. Uh, so this is a person who rose to the top of the Thai foreign ministry in the late 50s, in his 20s, and maintained that level uh, of prominence for the next 60 years in various different ways. And he went on to become permanent secretary to the United Nations uh, in 1967, so I mean he was only in his early 30s. He became the ambassador in Washington, he'd also been the ambassador in uh, Canada, but he became the ambassador in Washington um, at the age of um, about 40. So this is really remarkable, and he was a, an individual who uh, um, rose to that level. There, there was only one person who became an ambassador at a younger age, and that was Prince Wan, who, who uh, was a different Right. Captain of Fish completely. So Anand's life is very interesting, and he his career began during the Cold War. Cold War, he was involved with Seattle when it was based in Bangkok. Uh, he then moved to New York. He was representing Thailand during the Vietnam War years, uh, uh, which is you know when Thailand was the principal ally to the United States in the execution of of the war in Vietnam. And um, then he was brought back in 1975 uh, to, sit, to basically handle the, um, <coughs> the draw of US troops. Right. Uh, and this is a very, very important thing for Thailand because the Americans have been operating as a neo-colonial 
presence of this huge military uh, garrison, principally uh, Air Force operating, uh, seven big air bases. The largest was Utapau, uh, which mm -hmm. was you know, the main launching point for the B-52 strikes on Vietnam. Um, so there was an enormous amount of very sensitive history. And when I started getting into this, it made me realize that the Vietnam War, particularly the end of it and how it ended in Indochina, had not really been covered very much from a Thai perspective. And the Thais had a very big problem. I mean, they, they were on the wrong side, if you will. If you will. Indochina fell, sure. it turned red. You had, um, on the other side, um, Burma lost in some strange socialistic odyssey. You had uh, communist forces down on the Malayan border, the Malaysian border. Um, and the domino Malaya, theory was starting to look very real. Well, this is, this is something I discuss. And of course, the domino theory was something the Americans pushed very, very strongly, but was something actually that the business people in Thailand and the Thais themselves didn't subscribe to. And the Thais had this, this view historically, you know, we were never colonized. Uh, we are a lucky people. We are different. We will survive whatever the cost. And the domino will not fall. And it did not fall. Right. Uh, and an important, uh, an important moment in the book is the normalization of relations with China, which happened um, in 1975, and that happened within six weeks of Saigon falling. So the ties moved very, very quickly, went up to Beijing, Kukrit, Pramod, the Prime Minister, made his famous visit there, mm -hmm. and diplomatic relations were established. And that's a very important moment in the thing. And Anand, again, was present because Anand was the person that led the negotiating team that went up ahead to Beijing. An extraordinary journey in those days. You know, you don't, don't just get on an airplane and fly to Beijing. This is, Not then. You, you trek through um, uh, Hong Kong and then you crossed into China and you went through across the Pearl River and you did all sorts of exotic things. It's like a piece of Tolkien. And, right. um, so this is very colourful stuff, but he negotiated the communique and then very soon after the return with Kukrit and this huge plane load of people that did fly directly from Bangkok for everybody of importance on one plane, which is almost unheard of. That's what I found fascinating about Anand was that uh, he was there and crucial to, uh, with the Americans pulling out of Thailand. And then there were the uh, resumption, well, they caught, caught the resumption of uh, ties with China. But then this also helped lead to the formation, to the formation of ASEAN, and right throughout he was he, he was in a critical role, sure. uh, probably it, more than any other diplomat. Well, ASEAN uh, was formed in '67, um, so it predates that. So it was five nations originally, and Anand was not directly involved with the formation of ASEAN, but he was involved with the New York side of it, forming the ASEAN club there, and these people beginning to coalesce in a way that and also giving it, before. And also giving it meaning in the United Nations. Absolutely, and, and they were all finding their way. So there's quite interesting descriptions of what, what the Singaporean delegation, for example, was like in the early days, and how they all found, you know, they, they actually got on socially. Uh, so it was very important. Now, ASEAN, the arguments that we have in, in this book, you know, was formed basically uh, ostensibly for economic reasons, but in fact for political reasons, and some would say specifically to deal with Vietnam after the end of the Vietnam War. 
So the end of the war took uh, ASEAN into a, into a new stretch. Something was going to change. And Anand was interesting at that time because he spoke about what, what lay in the future and he talked about the Indo-Chinese states and Burma becoming part of ASEAN. That's really, when you think of 1975, that's really looking ahead because this stuff didn't happen until the late 90s. But it did happen. But it did happen. So he was right. And, he, and, and so that very long-term vision of where you want to be, something that I think is very interesting in Asia when you compare it to sure. other parts of the world. It was there. Um, so that was, um, that was a big change. And then, if, as you recall, if, if during the 1980s, the, the glue for ASEAN was Cambodia. Right. So they, uh, and then the numbers started going up. So you've got Brunei coming on board, and then you've got Indochina coming in later. But in the 80s, it was how to deal with Vietnam's occupation of Cambodia. That was the key issue. And of course, with Thailand, um, most people have in their, uh, people who study the region certainly know about the massacres of Tamasat. Yeah. In, in, 19, in 1976. Yeah, October, uh, yes. Right. And uh, what I appreciated about the book was how it puts it in that context. So you have the Cold War, you have the Americans pulling out of Vietnam, and what you essentially have are the left-wing students and a right-wing military. Yeah. And you can see how this... The, it's, it's, it's a wonderful description about how the politics that led up in explaining how this happened, and it, so uh, the parallels with modern-day Thailand aren't too different, but... Um, well, I think they are. Different I mean, reasons, I, but... I wouldn't stretch it that far. I mean, you, right. you had these very uh, idealistic students who um, come in in 73 when they managed to push a, a military mm -hmm. uh, government, a junta, uh, abroad, and that was an extraordinary feat. Um, and then you had these very painful experiments with democracy, the Kukrit governments, his brother Seni Pramod. So you had three governments that had great difficulties, did interesting things, um, but there was growing uh, frustration with the, the, the students' idealism and provoca provocation, the complexity of the end of the Vietnam War. Now, Anand fits into this in a very interesting way because he was a, a diplomat, he was very sceptical about the Vietnam um, and he, he could see that um, things were going in, in a difficult direction. But he had been one of the people who negotiated with China secretly in the very early 70s, uh, before uh, Kissinger went to uh, yep. Beijing, before Nixon began to normalise it. And so the ties were very quietly approaching the Chinese. So everything is changing uh, at this juncture. And then at the same time, Thailand was engaging with uh, Eastern Europe and beginning to do trade there. And it was, it was looking at ways that it could live practically in the world. And I know it's very much a part of that. Now, you have this backlash going against the students. You have somebody like Anand who's fundamentally sceptical about military rule, and that, that was very much a part of his character. So when you had this terrible backlash in 76 at Tamasak, where students were just massacred and immolated, uh, at Salem Luang, um, he ended up being one of the victims and he was spuriously accused of being leftist and communist. <clears throat> By that time he was the permanent secretary of the ministry. And although it, his career, he was uh, found 
basically not guilty by the yeah. courts, I guess. But well, um, not the courts. It was a congressional inquiry. Right, but he was, he was exonerated. exonerated. Yeah, but uh, but there was no going back. That's right. And yes. so he was not restored to being the permanent secretary. He was given a very senior posting in Europe, the ambassador to Bonn, yep. and he negotiated all the stuff with the Europeans uh, because ASEAN was building its relationship at that time. And so he was given a very senior position. But from his point of view. It was it was something that he couldn't uh, ignore, and he 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 felt it didn't belong, and he wanted to do something else. So he he stepped out and moved into the private sector, and he spent the next twelve years with Saha Union, which is a Chinese Thai conglomerate which deals with textiles, and at that time textiles, zippers, and goodness knows what, and it appealed to him because it was one of the companies that had very little to do with the government. There was no procurement element. There was no commissioning, you know, corruption. No, no, so I, he liked it. It was clean. I remember. I, I think it was uh, Damry. Uh, his, his wife was saying that um, we uh, we only have one set of books. Yeah, she's quite amusing. Yeah, but, but it's true. And Saha Union has that sort of squeaky, squeaky clean reputation. They're serious people. And uh, anyway, uh, and then had this career but it was interesting because Saha Union gave him a lot of flexibility so he was allowed to be involved with regional activities and one of the things that he worked on was the ASEAN task force on free trade which would turn into AFTA and so they, they produced a plan for free trade in ASEAN and this is in the mid 80s and that was presented uh, at Manila in 87 the summit there and it wasn't taken very seriously <clears throat> because it was a, a busy time for the Philippines, you know, the Corazon Aquino, this is after people power. And um, it got shelved, and then Anand unexpectedly becomes Prime Minister in 91 after a military coup. The military of all people go back to him and invite him to form a government, <clears throat> which he did. And it was one of the most highly regarded cabinets in Thai history in terms of uh, capability. It was a technocrat cabinet, there were no politicians. But uh, one of the things that happened was that he went down to Singapore and uh, on, a, on a visit, and Go Chok Tong was by then the Prime Minister, and Lee Kuan Yew was the senior minister. And Lee Kuan Yew called on Anand in his hotel because he wasn't the Prime Minister, so Anand didn't go and see Lee Kuan Yew. And, and Lee Kuan Yew said, look, um, you know, you produced this interesting report on regional trade, and you are a very unusual Prime Minister because you are somebody who has a background in diplomacy, you know, public servant, but also you understand business. And anyway, Lee Kuan Yew said, basically, I think you should give this another go, bring it back right. up in ASEAN. And of course, the Singaporeans had a reason for wanting Thailand to do that, because the Singaporeans are very small. Um, they have all these sort of intellectual abilities as a think tank for ASEAN in many respects, but the same time it doesn't have geopolitical clout, so it needs to operate through somebody else. Now, the, the dominant force in ASEAN is Indonesia, who always has been, mm -hmm. um, and Malaysia is very influential, the Philippines is the, the founding group, sure. but Singapore cannot do it on its own, so there's this very interesting relationship that's always been there with Thailand, which is one border removed, it doesn't, it doesn't threaten Singapore in any way, and it's quite sympathetic, so it's a quiet, quiet alliance. And I think this, this meeting was a crystallisation of that relationship, and that, that um, 
Lee managed to persuade uh, Anand to pick up and run with the idea after, and it happened. And so when there was a uh, meeting in Singapore in early 92, that's when the AFTA agreement was signed and everything moved forward from there. And you know, after after done relatively well, I think everybody's you know subscribes right. the idea. I'm not saying it's it's all 100% implemented or anything, but we're now in 2015. AEC yes has, has come into into effect. That's something that's moving very slowly, but it's happening. And that's all grounded in AFTA. So you go back to what happened in uh, uh, basically in the early 90s and. and the, the liberals within the economic liberals within ASEAN, and Anand is a good example of that, yeah. uh, and what they did at that time, it, and how they sowed the seeds, and things picked up at their own rate. It must have had a, uh, I think he must have had a, have had a very satisfactory career in the sense that what Southeast Asia has become, particularly when you look at it through the prism of, say, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, where it was all politics and conflict. What he envisaged is actually what uh, Southeast Asia has become through ASEAN, through the AEC. And yes, I mean, there's, there's certainly lots of issues to still be resolved, but uh, the way he envisaged it, and there were a lot of people who were not backing him, there were a lot of people who didn't agree with his kind of view of the world, but it has come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, you have to be careful about trying to apply that Anand did this, and what I'm saying is he's one of the people that was very important and contributed, sure. and of course, it, th this will only work collectively. You know, ASEAN has to do what ASEAN wants to do, and they've all got to be in agreement. Now, we're we're, we're sitting today at this moment. ASEAN has got a lot of problems, and there's a lot of division that you haven't seen before. So, you know, for example, Cambodia has been able to actually stall a decision and just undermine the, the traditional consensus approach. So, Anand's message in early 1990 was: Don't ever force the pace recognise that these are countries of, of different stages of development and that they need to be um, allowed to find their own level. And you've got, in ASEAN you have something very difficult to deal with. Not only are all the governments very different, you've got communists, Laos and Vietnam, you've got um, military rule at the moment in Thailand, you've got uh, a sultan in Brunei, you've got a big state. You know, sure. Malaysia is the only democratic country around, you could argue. But, being frivolous, but you know, this isn't, the, and they're not of equal levels of development. So, Singapore is a very advanced first world economy, mm -hmm. Laos is anything but. And so, how, how do you get these things to all move along together and, and be reasonable? And Suharto, when Anand went down to see him in '91, was extremely concerned about this. He didn't want Indonesia being kind of bullied by. Malaysia and Thailand and the Philippines and particularly Singapore because they were further further along. Right. And so this was a big issue and Anand gave lots of assurances at that time. But um, anyway, I think the thing the thing about the book, um, you know, it, it's the story of the life of one man who, who's a very fortunate person who's had a very interesting life and he's always sort of been in demand. People have recognised his skills and asked him do things. So he's never been an elected figure. You know, he was an appointed prime minister twice. Uh, he's a technocrat. He's deeply suspicious of politics. It's something he doesn't believe he could uh, right. fit in with his personality. And that's probably correct assessment. And uh, he had a. Sometimes I feel the book 
you're taking great pains to say that he, he didn't have a privileged background when he, in that in that sense I guess from um, no I think the, that's wrong I think the, he clearly did have a privilege that's what I would yes that's what I would I, yes, I, I, yeah, I, would I don't think I, I um, but I think what I push is that he's a person who's achieved uh, what he's achieved on merit right and that's very very clear he's he's done very well he has certain skills but this goes back to his education which of it course does. was um, Cambridge. And, and more uh, importantly, Dulwich. Dulwich, yeah. yes. I think the Dulwich element, when you read the book, you realise that this was a hugely formative period. Uh, he went to Dulwich very late, 16, normally he'd go in at 13. Right. So he was a very mature student, and he ended up being a, a school prefect, if you can imagine that, for two years, which is very unusual. But the reason that's significant is that the headmaster at the time was a man called Christopher Jilts. And Christopher Jilts was a revolutionary in education, and he had very strong ideas about um, boys that should be educated. He was egalitarian. He believed that boys with uh, intelligence should get their education irrespective of their backgrounds. And um, this is something that appealed and that caught and the, the young man's imagination because every week they'd have these prefect meetings on Friday and they would last an hour, and Jilks would uh, talk to the boys about principles, ethics, you know, it was more of a tutorial, it wasn't about who would be cleaning the badminton courts, or, you know, it was nothing trivial, it was serious stuff. And it had a very big impact on them, and you know, when talking to him, you realise that's the case. And I doubt if Jilks realised that he was having this huge impact on this particular boy. Right. Uh, but it's lived with him, and I think it's, this is a very interesting headmaster. It was a very interesting um, education, strong ideas, and I think you could say that it had a nun gone to another British public school at the time, like Eton, Harrods, and Paul's, whatever. He wouldn't be the person he is today. When you see a nun, there's something different about him, and he has—he's always open to, to outside opinions. I mean, he—he—he he, he can debate fiercely and argue fiercely, but he listens. He also says that. Uh Never be frightened to apologise. Yeah. Never be frightened to make a mistake. Yeah. And carry on. I sure. Anyways, and and the, these these are all kind of aspects, I guess, of life in many Southeast Asian countries, which some people would uh, might argue that uh, not dreadfully strong on. No. But um, this, this comes since back you're to generalising. <laughs> since I'm generalising. Dangerously. His education obviously gave him an edge. In uh, particularly when competing with other diplomats for postings, and what he would become later on. Yeah, and also I, I, I think it's not that it's a British education. I think this this personality that he encountered happened to be in England. Right. And it was a it, a very important moment in his life, and I, I make quite a lot of it in the book. So he went to Cambridge, and um, I think he had a fairly you know he enjoyed himself. But Why he, wouldn't you? You know, <laughs> he, he had a better allowance and, yeah. and he enjoyed it. And he's very funny and he said, I'm a double third and I'm very proud of it. But he passed. And, and what and, a wonderful place yeah, to be. Yeah, but that's honest, you know, it's up front. Yeah. Uh, so Cambridge was important, but it wasn't, it wasn't formative in the way that Dulwich was. Right. And um, so that's something that's, that is very important. Yeah. Uh, given Anand's kind of trajectory all the way through, 
where do you see, or where would Anand see Thailand going next, and particularly the way the region is changing rapidly, relations with China, uh, there's all sorts of issues dogging countries like Cambodia, as you mentioned, Cambodia has um, been quite strong in, they would argue not, but everybody else would argue that they've been quite strong in undermining Asia's position, particularly in the South China Sea. Um, when we look at what's happening in Myanmar um, and elsewhere in the region, and even in Malaysia, where things have changed rapidly with um, Najib being ousted and Mahathir. Yeah, I'd be back. very. I have to be very careful with this because um, Anand is now eighty-six, right? And so his his main career is twentieth century. And so I think the importance of the book, when I talk about the making of modern Thai history, I think it's very important for people to understand how Thailand emerged from the 20th century and how people like Anand fitted into it. Now, as the years have advanced, he's not been inactive at all, but he's not a political figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's, you know, he, he, he would, he's a royalist. He'd be on the yellow side of the political divide, but as, as one of his yellow shirt friends describes him, he's light yellow, and he has lots of friends who are red. You know, right. he, he mingles. So I'd be very careful about, um, you know, discussing what Anand thinks about contemporary regional politics. But China, he's all for it. You know, the relationship with China is tremendously important. He's one of the architects of that, mm-hmm. the engineers, if you know, the technicians who brought that about in 76, uh, Union, the company that he was associated with, was huge investments in China, much, much bigger now than they have in Thailand, so it sort of faded. So it's all changed. Now, Anand's life in the 20th century has been much more involved with um, activities outside politics, you know, NGOs, promoting issues like transparency, uh, being involved with UNICEF, um, working on developing a political culture that produces a more democratic environment. And then he's done all these um, jobs, uh, had these tasks assigned to him as a public servant. Importantly, 2004, Kofi Annan asked uh, Annan to chair this high-level panel on threats to world peace, which is still topical, and that was delivered in 2005. And so this is post-Iraq, post 9 11, America taking unilateral action effectively. Very much what, into the next What was the place of the United Nations? And Kofi Annan needed to sort this out. And Annan mm. chaired that particular uh, commission, and uh, as I said, it was published, I think, eventually in 2005. Then he came back to Thailand and he chaired another commission on the south of Thailand, which had erupted in the, in the years since uh, the early, in the early part of the 21st century. And that was a very difficult thing. That was um, a commission that was dealing in a situation that was in fact deteriorating. Usually when you have these commissions, uh, fact-finding, it's after the event. You have peace and then you try and work out what happened. Look at uh, Rwanda. Sure, yeah. So they were trying to do this on the hoof. And um, that report is around. I think it's still very important. I don't think anybody would say that there was a great success out of it, but it's there to be read. And, and at the moment, you know, we still have problems in the South, but the, the level of violence currently, 2018, is the lowest it's been since, um, since they erupted in 2001. 
And then he chaired another panel, which is on national reform, which advocated, for example, decentralization as a, as a big way forward, which is an incredibly sensitive issue in Thailand, which is a unitary state focused on Bangkok. Uh, the establishment is very against, um, we talk about the defense ministry, the interior ministry, uh, the Privy Council, these are very conservative elements. And when you start talking about decentralization, they get very uncomfortable. Um, so he's, he's you know, skated on, on thin ice, <clears throat> and he's not afraid of controversy. Right. And one of the people that knows him very well thinks that, that that actually is his great strength, that he's the person who steps forward and says, well, have you thought about doing things differently? Consider the alternatives. And because he has such status uh, in Thai society, he can say those things. And then, controversially, it was an unelected prime minister, so that was the thing that he had to deal with. And I, I talk a lot about how he grappled with that issue and how he, he um, legitimised himself and was productive, did good things for Thailand. And his first government was only last about 16 months, but it saw enormous legislation go through uh, that reformed the economy and, and has you know, effects that can still be felt today. So that was a very important thing. But Anand was uh, you know, appointed by a junta, which could have fired him at any point. Uh, and then he was brought back again. Um, so the junta at that time produced a constitution. Uh, that constitution led in 92 to an unelected army commander in chief becoming prime minister. And that ended in a disaster bloodbath in May. So there's some quite interesting uh, historical elements here that should be considered and um, people might wonder about their, their relevance going down the yep. line further. So I think I think that's a very interesting period and how uh, how Anand was able to deal with that, his personality, how it worked. Um, and you look around today and you try and see the personalities involved and whether there's anything comparable. Uh, this obsession in Thailand with producing new constitutions that have never worked. I mean, we, I think we're up to 20 now. Um, there are lots of issues, and when you talk to the older generation, people like Hanan and some of his co co colleagues, are, they, I think, are, are dispirited by the whole debate over constitutions. They think it's basically a waste of time. The more important thing is to focus on developing a more mature political culture in which people respect each other, in which people actually understand what democracy is about, which is making sure that minorities are properly treated, that they're not defenceless, that it's not just the victorious trampling over everybody, that it's not just a, a society in which the well-off become more well-off. Um, so a lot of his messages are very, very topical at this time in Thailand. Fantastic. Look, well done on the book. Uh, I think it's a terrific read and for anybody who would like to get a, a deeper understanding of what has happened in Thailand in recent years, it's um, a thoroughly good read. Uh, thanks very much, Dominic, and well done. Thank you.